0: Good morning, everybody. Thank you for joining us today. Let's open in a word of prayer. Father, as we come to your precious word, we ask that you would open up our minds and our hearts so that we would understand and also that we would have hearts of obedience to put into practice what we learn. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Sometimes when I'm praying, I start to get a little bit distracted. I'm sure you can relate to this because I want to move on to the next demand that I have in the day. And so I start to fudge my prayers a little bit and uh, try and get through them quickly. And one of the ways that I do that, and I hope that you're not learning from me on this because this is not the best way to, to do things, is I just start saying, like I might be praying for Gail, I just start saying, Lord, please bless Gail. And then to give it lots of meaning, I say, Lord, please just really bless Gail. And then bless Matthew and bless Catherine. Um, And I hope you can relate. I hope you're not going to sit in judgment on me. It doesn't happen all the time, but it does happen from time to time. But what does it mean? What does it mean to ask for God's blessing on a person? Or maybe take WhatsApp messages or emails, for example. I I often sign off with the words, Blessings Ian, which means that I, I pray that God will bless the person that I'm writing to or sending a message to have you ever wondered how we actually attract the blessings of God what sort of circumstances put us in a place of blessing so let's read from Luke chapter 6 verses 17 to 26 and um, see if we can find out so in that passage it says and he came down with them this is talking about Jesus and stood in a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. So there would have been followers of Jesus. There would have people who, been people who opposed Jesus from Jerusalem, probably the scribes and the Pharisees. And then there were also um, Gentiles from Tyre and Sidon because those were both Gentile cities. So they came to hear him. And to be healed of their diseases. Never forget that Jesus' ministry was a ministry of word, but also of action and of compassion. And it needs to be the same for us as well. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. And woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. You're probably thinking, this doesn't really answer my question. Maybe you're feeling a little bit shocked. Maybe you're feeling confused. So I think we need some context, first of all, because if we take a passage out of its context, it becomes a pretext and we can easily be deceived. So let's look at the context. Luke was written by a Gentile doctor who was a traveling co-worker of Paul. And being a doctor, Luke wanted to write what he called, and he says this at the start of his gospel, an orderly account based on eyewitness observations of the things that jesus did and the things that he said and this kind of appeals to us as people with a western mindset because we like things to be orderly and we're also quite empirical by inclination we want evidence if we're going to believe something we want evidence and so luke wrote this orderly account based on the evidence of eyewitnesses and his purpose, he declares this as well, was to show how the story of Jesus fulfills the story of God, Israel and, this is important, all humanity. So chapters 1 and 2 of Luke, are there an introduction, telling the parallel birth stories of two remarkable babies. On the one hand we have John, who is the prophetic messenger who prepares Israel to meet their God and then on the other hand Jesus the messianic king who will bring God's reign and blessing note those words reign which implies that there's a kingdom and a king and then blessing so everyone wants to receive blessing i'm sure you blessings i'm sure you'd agree with that especially the blessings of God and it's logical that since Jesus is going to establish a kingdom one needs to enter his kingdom in order to experience the blessings. But the question is, who qualifies? Who can enter? How do you enter? And what are the blessings? And so keep those questions in mind and keep your ears pricked for the word blessing as we continue. So chapters one and two are an introduction, They're Luke's introduction. And then in chapter three, Luke uses the baptism and a long genealogy of Jesus to show that Jesus is the messianic king who brings God's blessings to all of humanity who can enter any kind of human can enter not just Jews people from every nation tribe tongue and racial group then in chapter 4 Jesus launches his kingdom mission by claiming publicly in his home synagogue in Nazareth that he is going to be the fulfillment of Isaiah 61 verses 1 to 2. This is a prophecy about Jesus from hundreds of years before and he claims that prophecy for himself. He says, I am the Messiah. I am the coming King. And this is what the prophecy said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Notice that word, poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. That comes from Luke chapter 4, verse 18. And so here we can learn more about who can enter this kingdom, the kingdom of God, the upside-down kingdom, as we've called it in this series. First of all, the poor can enter. Now, this is quite important. The Hebrew word hani has a broad range of meaning. It doesn't simply refer to people that don't have um, material wealth. It also includes people who are powerless, who have low social standing, and people who are considered to be outsiders. And Luke emphasizes this in in chapters 4 to 8 because he gives accounts of Jesus' interaction with people who are poor so he he prays for the sick and they're healed he makes the leper who was a social outcast clean so that he can come back into the synagogue and be in the presence of the community and of the people um, and then he also um, ha- accounts stories uh, that have to do with social outsiders um, a tax collector Levi he was a wealthy man but he was ostracized by the community And then he also offers forgiveness to a prostitute. But what about the nature of the blessing that Jesus grants to the members of his kingdom? Can you see that word liberty? It's used twice and in some translations they use the word freedom. And that Greek word is used in the Bible to refer to the Jewish practice of jubilee, the year of jubilee. You see, in Jewish society, if you ended up running up such a, 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 a bad debt because you, you, maybe you, you, you had a hard time in your business or things didn't work out on the farm, what would happen is you would eventually say, look, I'll come and be your slave. I'll come and work for you just for board and lodging. Me and my family will come and work for you and we will be your slaves. Um, but after 50 years, every 50 years, Every single person was set free and all the debts were written off. And so this is what the kingdom of God is about. It's about liberty. This gives you a sense of the kind of blessing that those who belong to Jesus' kingdom will receive. We're, We're all under slavery to sin. Sin is our owner and we have experienced this jubilee, this freedom. We get set free from that. The debt that we have run up against God is written off. And now we come to the point. We're getting closer to our passage today um, where Jesus forms his new kingdom. So in the Old Testament, when God formed the kingdom of Israel, it happened on a mountain, didn't it? Mount Sinai. And then Moses passed on the Ten Commandments at the foot of the mountain. So when Jesus forms his new kingdom, he also climbs up a mountain. You can see it there in chapter 6 verse 12. In these days he went out to the mountain to pray and all night he continued in prayer to God. So Jesus goes up this mountain and then he, um, he chooses his 12 disciples. And so those 12 disciples are the new leaders of the 12 tribes of the new Israel. He's using symbolism here in the way that he's doing things and then in verse 6 uh, verse 17 chapter 6 verse 17 it says Jesus came down with them the disciples and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the sea coast of Tyre and Sidon Jesus is about to launch his new kingdom he's chosen the leaders in the kingdom and now he declares his manifesto to both the Jews and the Gentiles, to those who are following him and those who don't follow him. It's like a president forming his cabinet and then proclaiming the government's manifesto and saying, this is what we're going to stand for. Will you join us? What will the blessings look like for those who belong? And what are the expectations on those who belong? Are there any ethical expectations? So, Look at today's passage. In verses 20 to 23, um, those verses refer to those who are members of the, of the kingdom and they explain why those people are blessed. And then in verses 24 to 26 refer to those who don't want to become members and explains why they're not blessed but rather in a woeful state. So what we're going to do now for the last part of this preach is we're going to learn from the blessed and we're going to learn from the woeful so let's have a look at the blessed I notice I'd like you to notice a few things so just look there at verse 20 it says Jesus lifted up his eyes on his disciples so these blessings that he's going to be talking about apply to those who have entered the kingdom they apply to those who are followers of Jesus they are blessed Because he says there, for yours is the kingdom of God. First thing to notice. The second thing to notice, just have a look there in your Bibles or on the screen. Notice the repeated use of now and shall. Something will happen to the disciples now and then later on. So we see this now versus then. Do you see it? Blessed are you who are hungry now. For you shall be satisfied. There's a now and a then. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Now the disciples are blessed, though poor. They are hungry, they're weeping, they're persecuted. Then sometime in the future, they shall be satisfied. They shall be laughing, they shall be rewarded. And look at where the reward is received. It's received in heaven. Great will be your reward in heaven. So the then is in heaven. Now we're here on earth and we are blessed through suffering. We're going to come back to that because it sounds so counterintuitive. Now we are blessed through suffering, then we will be rewarded. Third thing to notice, the state of being poor, hungry and weeping is all related to being persecuted. So we shouldn't see the poor hungry and weeping as like separate groups but rather as elements of the same portrait. This is a picture of people suffering from the various effects of persecution because they have been socially ostracized, because they are being treated unjustly they end up weeping, they end up being hungry. Fourth thing to notice is that the blessed don't have man's approval but they do have God's approval. How do we know that they are approved of by God? Because he will reward them in the then, in the future. And the reason that man disapproves and that God approves is on account of the Son of Man. These people are not being persecuted because they're evil people. They're not being persecuted because they're, they're, they're nasty or doing illegal things. No, they're being persecuted on account of the Son of Man. And then the last thing to notice is that in that day when we suffer persecution on account of Jesus, we are to rejoice and it's a command. It's the only command actually in today's passage. We are to rejoice. Why? Because of the great reward that we will receive in heaven. So what does this mean for us today? It means that the ethics of the kingdom are to be guided by this principle. We as members of the kingdom are obligated to please Jesus and to seek his approval no matter what the cost. And of course this is an overflow from the fact that we have been set free from our slavery because we no longer are bound by sin and also um, because our debt against God has been completely written off. So members of the kingdom are to please Jesus and to seek his approval, no matter what the cost. In some cases, that cost may be persecution. But in other ways, it may be discomfort or some kind of sacrifice. So why do we please Jesus to seek his approval, no matter what the cost? Well, because by pleasing Jesus on earth... It means we are going to get rewarded in heaven. We're going to receive an eternal reward. Where would you like to receive your reward? Would you like to receive it on earth where it's temporal? Or would you like to receive it in heaven where it will not perish and it will last and serve you for eternity? Here's the other thing. The greater the sacrifice now, the greater the reward then when we get to heaven. And for this reason, that's the reason why we are to rejoice when we suffer or take some sort of a knock on account of jesus so in other words harvest family you are most blessed by god when you are making a sacrifice for his sake if pleasing jesus means that you must suffer loss then you are blessed and we need to see that as an occasion for rejoicing because we're going to be rewarded in heaven god's grace flows to those who align themselves to him on a daily basis at great cost. He is aware of what we're going through and he promises to vindicate the faithful. Make no mistake, folks. We as members of the kingdom on this earth are called to obey Jesus sacrificially. And that's why Jesus said in Luke 923 to 24, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily. Do you see that? Not take up your cross once a month or once in a lifetime or once a year, but take up your cross daily. The cross is a symbol of sacrifice. It's a symbol of discomfort. And we've got to take it up to follow him for the sake of following him. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. So folks, chances are that you may not experience the kind of persecution that Jesus is foreseeing for his followers. But certainly, if you are going to live in such a way that pleases God, it means you're going to have to sacrifice some of your own passions and your desires and comforts. So that's the lesson from the blessed. What about some of the lessons from the woeful, those who are in a woeful state let's notice a few things turn to verse 24 he starts the verse off by saying but but woe to you who are rich for you have received your consolation by implication on earth why is he setting up this contrast the contrast means that whereas the blessed were jesus's disciples remember he lifted up his eyes on his disciples um, these people are are not his disciples and he is addressing them so you can imagine there's this huge crowd there's gentiles there's jews there's his opponents from jerusalem they're his disciples who've been following him around now he he was looking at at his at his disciples his followers now he looks to those who oppose him second thing to notice is is we see that repeated use of the formula now and shall Now this group is in a woeful state, although comfortable, well-fed, happy, well-spoken of. Why? Because they've received their comfort now on earth. Isn't that significant? They're receiving it on earth, but then sometime in the future, they are going to be hungry, mournful, and weeping when they experience the final judgment for rebelling against God, for refusing to enter into His kingdom. They say, no, we don't want to be part of your kingdom. And so Jesus says, okay, for the rest of eternity, you won't be in my presence. You won't be part of my kingdom. And for the rest of eternity, there's going to be suffering. Third point. Jesus foresees that this particular group, they hadn't started yet, but that they were going to start persecuting his followers. How do we know? Well, just look at the the, the verse there, uh, verse 26. Um, The people that speak well of this group are like all of those um, from the past who approved of the false prophets. And by implication, they approved of those who persecuted Jesus' true prophets. And the last thing, the scary thing about being in these circumstances is that there is nothing in them to challenge a person to live differently or to see a need for God. Man approves, but God's disapproval is not heard because this group of people are rich. They're so comfortable and they're so happy that there's nothing in life that's actually calling them back to God. It's a very scary place to be. So what can we learn from this group? Well, let's just reflect for a moment on their characteristics. This group is persecuting Christ followers and members of the group are rich, they're powerful, They're happy, they're comfortable, and they have good social standing. Now, think of yourself. Is there any overlap between you and that group? And if we're honest with ourselves, there is. Because we are people of means. We are the rich of the world. We have good social standing. By and large, people speak well of us. And so that means that we're in a precarious position. Do you remember the main principle? Christ followers are to please Jesus and to seek his approval no matter what the cost. Why? Because by pleasing Jesus on earth, we will be rewarded in heaven. And the greater the sacrifice now, the greater the reward then. Let let me tell you something, keeping that in mind for free. Making sacrifices for Jesus, and I'm speaking from experience here, because I identify with what I've been talking about here. Making sacrifices for Jesus is particularly difficult if one is rich. And folks, we are rich. We are right up there in the top percentile of the most wealthy people in the world. And the reason for this is that as rich people, we get used to the comforts and the luxuries of being rich. In fact, after a time, we begin to believe that we are entitled to our luxuries. And because of these, these things, because these things come from money, we're inclined to depend on money. There's a direct link between our wealth and our money and our comfort. And so we do what it takes to make sure that the money keeps flowing in, even if it means disobeying Jesus, even if it means going against the ethics of the kingdom of God this is a real danger for us do not be deceived folks money is a competing God money will compete with Jesus for the affections of your heart and it demands that we love it more than God and look at what happens when we do but godliness with contentment is great gain I'm reading from 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 Timothy now For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But, now we come to the dangers, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, get this folks, The love of money, not money, but the love of it. Loving it as much as you love God or more than you love God is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many troubles. Pierced themselves. It's like a crucifixion. Money will crucify you. Daryl Brock, um, a theologian, writes, Wealth can create a sense of independence. This really resonated with me. A sense of independence that results on the one hand in distance from God and callousness towards others. Callousness towards others. Years ago, probably about 25 years ago, I was thinking about it on my way here this morning. I worked with an elderly foreman uh, on a construction site. His name was oberton Mpofu. He's, he's, he's long past. Um, and one day, he looked down at my shoes and he asked me, why do you hate your shoes? <laughs> he didn't think that I was looking after my shoes properly. And so I looked at his shoes and they were in immaculate condition. I mean, I could see my reflection in those shoes. He was, he was a former soldier as well. So you, you, you just get an idea of how he used to buff those things up. And so we got to talking about shoes. And Albert told me that he received a brand new pair of safety shoes from the company every year. And he'd figured out that he could make a pair last longer than a year not for two full years but longer than a year so every few years there was a cycle where he could actually put away a brand new pair of shoes why was he doing that he was doing it for his retirement he wanted to make sure that he had some nice pairs of shoes for his retirement and I was challenged guys I mean, I take it for granted that when I retire, I'm going to be in a, in a nice house, in a nice area, a house that I own, that I have a car which I can drive, money to spend on trips to visit my children and my grandchildren. I mean, I, I get to the place where I, where I just assume that I am entitled to these things. I was totally unaware that some people need to make a plan so that they have shoes, just shoes, in their retirement. You see, when we don't pick that up, when we don't realize that, we start to, to lose empathy and understanding for other people who are not as well off as we are. It can make us callous towards others. Here's another example. In the time of Paul, Christians would share at the Lord's Supper. Um, I beg your pardon. Uh, yeah, so in the time of Paul, Christians would share a meal together on a Sunday as a way of celebrating the Lord's supper, but the rich were gorging themselves on luxuries and drinking too much wine. Even can you, can you believe it? Whilst the poor in their midst were going hungry. So let me read to you from 1 Corinthians 11:20 20 to 22. Paul says to the Corinthians, "When you come together, it is not the Lord's supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What?" <laughs> Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? Do you see that? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. That callousness that can creep in. And sometimes it's not even intentional. It just, it, it's just that we don't, we're not self-aware. We, we don't step back enough from our own circumstances to see what's going on. It's no wonder that James wrote the following warning. This comes from James 5, 1 to 4. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be against you, evidence against you and you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasures in the last days. Behold... The wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, loving money so much that defrauding the people that are working for them, it's crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters had reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. So what can we do, folks? to safely negotiate the pitfalls of being rich as we are what Paul goes on to say in Timothy as for the rich in this present age charge them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy they are to do good to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Don't be haughty. That means don't be arrogantly superior or disdainful. A question, how do you treat people of lower social status than you? Are you callous towards the poor? I often think of the way that I'm tempted to relate to security guards or car park attendants. Sometimes they'll they'll be directing me into a particular park. And I'm like, no, I don't want to go into that park. I want to go into this park. And so I treat them disdainfully, haughtily. Another lesson here. Don't trust in riches, but trust in God. Don't set your hopes on the uncertainty of riches, Paul says here, but on God. What are you trusting in? Are you trusting in God or riches? Because if you're trusting in your riches, you'll be more inclined to compromise on what God wants you to do, on what pleases Him. Then also here, be generous and ready to share. I just love the fact that we've been able to send a gift to the the One Life Foundation in South Africa to help people who are struggling in the floods. You know, it's one thing to be a wealthy person, when you experience that kind of a disaster but it's another thing when you're just on the bread line you're just teetering on the brink that kind of a disaster can be a huge problem so we need to be generous and we need to be ready to share because every time we give money away we're, we're actually defiling the altar of the God of money and so that's why we do it and then we set our heart on our eternal reward I love this store up treasures for yourself as a good foundation for the future this is talking about the reward that we're going to receive when we get to heaven and so folks just in conclusion today Jesus's kingdom is open to people of every nation tribe and tongue no one is excluded because even if you lack wealth or power or social standing you'll still be allowed to come into the kingdom but when you enter this kingdom, never forget that Jesus is the king. He's written off your debt to, to God. he's set you free from slavery to sin. But he is nevertheless the king. And so this is the principle. Members of the kingdom are to please Jesus and to seek his approval no matter what the cost. Why? Because pleasing Jesus on earth, we will be rewarded In heaven, and the greater the sacrifice now, the greater the reward then. And for this reason, we are to rejoice when we have opportunity to suffer on account of Jesus, to take some sort of a hit, take some sort of a knock for the sake of being obedient to Jesus and being pleasing to Him. So, in other words, our dear family, you are most blessed by God when He calls you to sacrifice for the sake of obedience. To him let's pray father God <laughs> we long to be people who please you you've done so much for us we've just been learning about it over Easter all the things that you achieve for us on the cross and in response now out of love for you we want to please you we want to please you on a daily basis even if that means picking up a cross even if it means taking some hits taking some knocks for your sake because we know that you are no man's debtor and that you will reward us in in heaven. And so, Father, also help us when we're struggling for your sake to just take it as an occasion for rejoicing because we know that we will receive a, a reward in heaven. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Thank you once again. And we commit ourselves to you. We pray that you would be a blessing to us so that we would be a blessing to others, and to you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.